I'm Dr. Noah Emery. I'm Sam Acuff. And this is the Addiction Psychologist Podcast. On today's episode, Dr. Sam Mizell will be joining us. Dr. Mizell is a research scientist at Bradley Children's Hospital and the Center for Alcohol and Addiction Studies at Brown University School of Public Health. Today, we're going to be talking about his research on adolescent substance use and the interpersonal processes at play that contribute to both risk and resilience in this group. We're going to cover a lot of ground from healthy development in teens, interpersonal processes, peer influence, parent influences, that all kind of coalesce during this really critical developmental period in life and how we can support young people to live the kind of lives that they want to live. Also, Sam is one of my favorite people in the field, so I'm really excited to have him join us and to share his work with our audience. Sam, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for uh, for having me. It's an honor and a privilege to be here with you both. Oh, it's an absolute pleasure to have you. Um, you do some of the coolest work out there and also just one of my favorite people in the field. So we're really excited to have you on the show. Um, we saw each of our episodes with a little bit of a conversation around your training history. Uh, we find that this helps us contextualize a little bit about your expertise and also just to hear a little bit about your journey. So would you mind telling us a little bit about your training history? Happy to. As a as a big fan of the, the pod, I've listened to many people talk about their training histories and it's it's fascinating to hear the different paths people have taken where they, they end up at a really interesting and impactful career. And I'm, I'm hoping that I can provide a pretty, a pretty linear journey um, <laughs> to the, the path to be a, a clinical psychologist and, and studying adolescent substance use. So my training history actually started when I was seven years old. And uh, I had a cousin who was going through a hard time. And I was talking about it a lot with my grandmother. And she saw my interest in psychology. And she bought me a notepad that on the first page was engraved, Sam Mizell, boy psychiatrist. <laughs> and and she encouraged me to take notes of people and experiences that were interesting to me. So that, that was really my, my first training experience and really where, where my passion for, for people developed. And then in, in high school, I, I was blessed with an AP psychology teacher, Alan Feldman, um, who just noticed my, my interest in psychology. And I remember applying to different schools for college, and he would just provide me with printouts of different faculty members there doing interesting research in clinical psychology. And he really gave me the insight that, that that is often just so overlooked in terms of what's the process for actually being competitive for clinical psychology mm. when I was in high school. And I, I feel so immensely blessed to have a high school teacher who gave me that, that insight. Uh, and then for, for undergrad, I went to Boston University, uh, where I did a I was a psychology major. I did research with Dr. Tibor Palfi. And at the time, Dr. Palfi was doing research on social influences of college student drinking. And I, I always knew I was interested in, in adolescence as a developmental period, but working at that lab in BU, I really started to think about the, the social processes that might be related to, to, to alcohol use. And that, that made me seek out a, a mentor in grad school was doing work on social processes during adolescence. And I was fortunate enough to go to the university at Buffalo and work with Dr. Craig Colder, um, where I, I got fantastic training in developmental models of adolescent alcohol use and substance use in general. 
developmental psychopathology, um, longitudinal methods in, in modeling adolescent substance use. And one of the things that was so amazing about my experience at the University at Buffalo was not only was Dr. Calder there, but Dr. Jen Reed, Dr. Larry Hawk, Dr. Steve Tiffany, these, these brilliant scientists and wonderful people uh, studying substance use whose offices were all next to each other and, and who were all friends with each other. So I got this great model of doing great science and also just being great colleagues and great people. And then for my uh, internship, I went to Brown University where I worked with uh, Dr. Robert Miranda and Dr. Haley Traylor Padovano, uh, where I was able to extend my work to not only study the, the initiation and escalation of adolescent substance use, but also to start to get my hands into adolescent substance use treatment research. And uh, currently I'm a uh, research scientist on a K99 from NIAAA, where I'm really trying to take all these wonderful experiences, getting training in both the early phases of adolescent substance use all the way through treatment mechanisms to try to study the full continuum to, to best inform how we improve the lives of teenagers. I love that. I love that you started with, well, seven years old. I mean, that's the farthest back. I think we've that's the so furthest far. back. That's like, the record right now. The yeah. bar has been set for Sam Mizell's for boy, been boy psychoanalyzing yeah. since seven boy years psychiatrist. old. Psychiatrist. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. And shout out um, Buffalo also who, who, surprisingly hasn't had as many i think members uh on the show as as other kind of places that have you know just large swaths of of addiction professionals uh with the exception of maybe you know dr mark prince oh i guess and and dr jan reed was on the show jan too. Reed, yeah <laughs> yeah so it's one of those places where it's like the seven degrees of kevin bacon is basically like brown mizzou right new mexico buffalo all kind of have show up across yeah. everybody yeah. Yeah. And the high school, I mean, we talk a lot about the people that we know in the field. Um, mm. But one thing we don't talk about, which I think is also instrumental in in, in helping people recover from substance use or um, even just sort of develop uh, through adolescence and emerging adulthood are, are those sort of the, the people in the background, like the, the high school teacher who just gives you a little extra attention and space. And so I really loved that you you sort of you named that teacher and um uh, it's 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 clear the impact uh, that that he's made, and and you didn't mention that you also got maybe the best job on the market this this cycle, which is uh, you. Why why don't you tell tell everyone where you're going, Sam? Sure. So in uh, July 2024, I'll be starting as a assistant professor in the clinical department at Boston University. So it'll be full circle going back to where I did my undergraduate studies, and it was it was a surreal experience. Uh, giving my job talk where I dormed literally right across the street from where I was giving my job talk. And I, I met my partner just down the street. So uh, I feel uh, immensely blessed and excited to return to Boston university in a yeah. little over a year. Was Dr. Palfi in the audience? He was. <sighs> that's meta. It was. That's meta. Was. Yeah, yeah. That's awesome. Congratulations. Well-deserved. Um, you're going to make you a huge impact, Sam, even already what you've done, which we'll talk a little bit about today. I mean, you are at, the beginning and um, what is to come, uh, I think will be remarkable. Um, before we jump into that, I think it would actually be useful for some of our listeners. Could you give like maybe a brief one or two minute spiel about a K99 um, or, or maybe K awards in general? I think we don't talk about that type of thing or grants or training mechanisms as often as we should, but um, since you mentioned it. 
Yeah, I'm I'm ha I'm happy to talk about the the K99 mechanism. So the 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 K99 mechanism is is really interesting in that it's really divided into two components. The first you can almost think about it as a as a mini K, where traditional Ks are for five years. A K99 is for a two year period of time, where essentially the purpose is you have many of the skills to. Uh, be a independent scientist, but there, there are a few exceptions. There are, few, there are a few gaps in your training where you can get some targeted training in a brief period of time to, to help you round out your expertise to be a successful independent scientist. And that K99, it's usually a, a smaller project. The research funds are equivalent to a traditional K, so it's not that much money. And then contingent on you receiving a tenure track faculty position, you transfer over to the ROO. So for example, just using me as an example, so I have my uh, K99 and then upon acceptance, my faculty position at Boston University, I will have to then apply for the ROO, which is more of an internal mechanism. And then if that's awarded, that ROO will carry with me to Boston University. And one of the really nice things about this mechanism is one, that the job market's really, really challenging right now. So people knowing that you have this mechanism and that the ROO is intended to come with you to your new position makes you more competitive on a tough market. And the second thing that's really nice is you're starting a faculty position with the equivalent of a small R01. It's, you know, it's about $250,000 a year. So you're able to really hit the ground running with money to collect your own data and run your own projects off the bat. Yeah. So, such an interesting mechanism, right? Like that combined with, you know, startup funds, which are very traditional to, to negotiate mm -hmm. in, in faculty hiring positions allows you to really be well positioned to do, you know, you know, kind of work that takes a long time and work that can be, you know, fairly quick and hit the ground running. And so it exactly. sounds like you're going to be really well positioned. Um, and, you know, such an interesting mechanism that it allows you to be able to get some training and then leverage that training into the job market to kind of, you know, round out your vision and achieve your kind of, um, you know, career success, if that makes sense. That is yeah. most certainly the plan. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for going through that, Sam. So today, what we'll talk a little bit about is, um, I mean, I guess definitely the work that I know you, I know you for, um, you know, a little bit about adolescent substance use. Um, I think you're sort of starting to maybe, or, or planning to move into the adolescent recovery space just a little bit as well, if you haven't already. And so understanding sort of the interaction between the social interpersonal processes with adolescent substance use and, and treatment. Um, so before we really dive into the meat of that, just um, out of curiosity, how did you uh, get into this area of work? Yeah, so I'm, I'm happy to talk about that. I'm also interested in, in whether your experiences mirrored mine or whether I was just a really naive adolescent. So <laughs> I, I went to a private Jewish day school, which is the most, uh, if you can think of just the, the quintessential bubble of not knowing how the world works, it's at, you know, a, a Jewish day school. And I, I was desperate to have more diversity and understand people from different backgrounds. So I begged my parents to let me go to public school. And when getting to public school, I, I was, I was in for it. So in, in, in my town, which I wasn't, you know, aware of, but there was this thing called the, the keg race where it was basically your graduation year plus 100 kegs that you had to drink between January 1 and graduation. So I'll give you an example. If you graduated in 2005, your grade was responsible for drinking 
105 kegs between the new year and then graduation. And this was, Jeez. well, this was well known in my town, which was not a particularly large town. And this is just what people did. And it was really fascinating. And I would also say confusing to me to <laughs> see to see this unfolding where so much of the, the, the social culture mm. and expectations were for you to contribute to this and to engage in drinking and you know for me who was interested in sports or watching movies that that just wasn't really valued and it most certainly wasn't going to facilitate forming social connections or, cl or climbing the social hierarchy or getting any sort of popularity where, where I grew up and I just was really fascinated how central substance use was in the social experiences of my peers in high school. And, and, and ever since then, I, I've just been fascinated with just understanding adolescence and the role that substances play in facilitating social development, but also as serving as risk factors for maybe worse social outcomes in adulthood. So it was, it was really my early experiences that, that got me interested in, in studying the intersection between interpersonal processes and substance use during adolescence. I have never heard of anything quite like that i mean you know <laughs> obviously i you know there were people in high school who who there was nothing like that where it was like a and, and i can imagine the effect that that has it seems like on you as someone who spent you know you, you didn't really engage in that um a, as much as others and then to people who maybe felt like the way to get connected was to engage in that high school is a funny thing Right. It most certainly I, is. I think it's a really great, you know, kind of microcosm for a lot of the processes that we think about, you know, in psychology at play. Um, you know, we, we've talked about it on the show several, several times about, you know, my background and things like this, which is probably not particularly helpful in this conversation here. But I, I, I'm here to say that that what you're talking about is correct. Mm. Right. That like who you're with and who you're around really influences how you think and how you feel and how you see the world. Right. And um, not surprisingly, that influences behavioral health decisions like substance use, you know, sexual activity, other things like this, all of which are the stuff that we really care about when we're talking about how teens are doing um, and, you know, what their kind of future outlook looks like. Um, however, the hundred kegs times your year sounds pretty extra. And also, I love that 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 your town's just like, yeah, that's the expected, you know, that's a, the expect, yeah. that's the tradition where you get these kegs, right? Like yeah. you got to get a hundred kegs plus your year. That's a lot of kegs to get from some mysterious underage keg provider. Yeah, and so we're not going to go into that for obvious legal reasons. And also, shout out whoever that is for making it happen. I guess um, hopefully it wasn't that same teacher we talked about earlier. Um, <laughs> no, it it was not. But good. what I yeah, will say, good. what I will say is. This is why I was, I, I'm so mindful in talking about my training trajectory and talking about, you know, my, my grandmother or my high school teacher, because if it wasn't for my grandmother or my high school teacher, or like the, the friends that I was able to yeah. make in high school, like my, my trajectory would have been drastically different in life. It's, it's the people who we form connections with yeah. that shape our interests and our values. And that, that, that plays such a mm. critical role critical role is, and largely a lot of that is is, is opportunistic right but it, yep. it yeah. has such a major impact on our development that i think it, it's important to just acknowledge that reality 
yeah, like we as humans just like need that connection. Um, yeah. Evolutionarily, I mean, it's like how we survived. We're we're group creatures, and so yeah, yeah. The, mm -hmm. This idea that you're mentioning of just like who you end up being around, like you can sort of start to adopt whatever the norm is there. Um, it's it's critical actually to survival um, in oh, a yeah. lot of ways, and so. Uh, well, let's let's get into that a little bit more. Before we do, can you give us an overview of like the scope of the problem, adolescent substance use? Um, uh, tell us just about uh, you know the, the, what we're what we're dealing with. So when when answering that 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 question, I think what I, what I'll say is my, my goal for this episode is to put everyone back in the headspace of what it was like to be a teenager. Yes, and yes. I, I think that is that is so critical to answering the question of like, what is the, the landscape? How big is this problem? Because like, I think just first and foremost, what is adolescence, right? So adolescence is usually marked by the onset of puberty. And you can think of all the physical changes that were occurring during puberty that maybe you don't want to have to look back and think, you know, think about, I know I don't want to think about that period and what it was like for me. Uh, but then also just the massive amount of maturation that's occurring in our brain. You know, we, we think about infancy in the first year of life as being this really critical period for brain development, but also the adolescent years is second in terms of the amount of brain development that's occurring. So when I talk about the scope of the problem here, it's with that context that there is massive amounts of physical and brain maturation occurring in the body. So, you know, when I, when I like to talk about the scope of the problem, uh, where, where I like to start is something as what we might think about as mundane as being offered a sip of alcohol from your parents. Like this is this is an experience that, that many, many people have growing up, where it could be at a religious setting, outside of a religious setting, just at the table or at a barbecue where you're offered just a sip of alcohol. And, you know, estimates suggest that, you know, about maybe 35 up to maybe 50%, depending on the studies of youth have that experience from ages nine to 14, depending on the study. And something as simple as just being offered a sip of alcohol has been associated across multiple studies now with longitudinal increased risk. This is like seven years down the road for an increased risk for a substance use disorder. So right with, this, with the scope of the problem, something as simple as being offered a sip of alcohol by your parents can put us at drastically increased risk for the development of a substance use disorder. In terms of just rates rates of use and thinking about in terms of just like more general language that we might use with with adults. It's, you know, by 12th grade, and this is just, these are just recent estimates for the monitoring the future study, which is a, a large nationally representative sample. By 12th grade, you know, 62% of youth are engaging in lifetime alcohol use. In terms of vaping, this, this is uh, vaping nicotine, 39% of youth report vaping. Cannabis, it's 38%. Um, and other things like opioids, they're less common during adolescence. They're, you know, 1% or less, depending on, on the class of drug. Um, but all this is to say that behavior starting with sipping, and then as rates increase over time, become increasingly risky. And we know that use during the adolescent years is associated with a host of long-term consequences. And we're talking about consequences, things that I'm interested in like interpersonal consequences. These are things like worse romantic relationships and relationships with your parents, but also increased risk for uh, substance use disorders in adulthood, early mortality, the onset of co-occurring psychopathology. So when thinking about the, 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 the scope here, it, it's, it's really 
widespread in terms of the substances that teens are, are using and also the, the long-term developmental risks that are associated with use during this period. Yeah, I think what you and I have a shared training background in part in that you and I, I think you still even to this day, um, see you know, clients through uh, the VISTA program at Bradley uh, Children's Hospital. Um, and whenever I talk to parents about teen substance use, right? So this is a clinic that's at um, Bob Miranda runs that um, sees, you know, kids with substance use related issues and co-occurring conditions, right? And, you know, I, we, when I meet with parents all the time, I'm like, I want you to just remember for a second what it was like to be 15. What were you doing when you were 15 years old? And they're like, oh, it's way different. I'm like, it's not. It's exactly the same, actually. And so I just want you to think about what 15-year-old you was up to, right? Like drug use experimentation at the, in this phase of life is very common. Right. And, and, mm -hmm. you know, many of them experience a bunch of problems, right? Like one in 15 teens develop a substance use disorder, you know, in, in any given year, but that also means that 14 and 15 didn't. Mm -hmm. Right. And so it's an interesting, you know, time where people, you know, make a bunch of behavioral health decisions that some change course of their life in meaningful ways and others, you know, it's just kind of a phase of life issue. Uh, and there's all kinds of factors that kind of contribute to these different trajectories over time. You know, and one of them that I know you've kind of looked into here a lot is kind of social contextual factors and how that influences yeah. maybe like risk or resilience to uh, these types of types of issues here. And so, you know, when I when I talk to parents, you know, like I want you to go back in the way back machine and think of what it was like when you're 15 years old. One of those things I want them to remember is like, who were you chilling with? What kind of people were these jokers, uh, which is, you know, if you were hanging out with people like I was when I was 15, it's probably a bad idea uh, or maybe a great idea depending on who you are and where you come from. Right. And so, um, you know, your work really is kind of centered on kind of understanding these interpersonal social contextual factors and how they maybe kind of gatekeep some of these effects. And so could you just talk to us a little bit about what kind of the, what are the kind of social factors that are at play in adolescence decision-making and, you know, what are the mechanisms here maybe that kind of contribute to, you know, differences in substance use. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I'm happy to answer that question, but I also just want to get back to Noah, something that, that you said, which is important, which is acknowledging those one out of 15 kids who, who do struggle. And when, when talking about the adolescent substance use, it's also just acknowledging that there are over a million teens in the U.S. who meet criteria for a substance use disorder. Yeah. And when thinking about the landscape for those kids, because it is important to acknowledge those one out of 15 kids, the landscape isn't great. Yeah. And that over 90% of them, those 1 million kids, will never receive specialty treatment for a substance use disorder. So like, I think that is something also that I hold in the back of my mind when we're, when we're talking about initiation and escalation of use. One of the reasons it's, it's, it's so important to think about how to prevent that, and mitigate risks associated with that, that if you are a teen who is struggling with substances, the treatment landscape is not great. Our treatments are not as effective so I, I think it, it's just, I think it's just really important just to acknowledge that that that, that group of kids who, who are struggling because what we have currently just is not so great. And I'm happy to talk about that more, but I just, I just wanted to take a second just to acknowledge those, that group of teenagers as well. No, agreed. Agreed. I think let's talk about it as a, as our conversation develops here, because I think these things are intertwined with the work yes. that you're doing. So, so getting to your, your, your question about the, the social contextual factors that are at play. I, I, I like to, to think about adolescence almost like navigating a tightrope where 
on the one hand, a, a central developmental task is forming close relationships with your peers. But on the other hand, youth are tasked with avoiding risk behaviors, which predominantly occur in the peer context. So that the central hmm. challenge is how can I figure out how to form close peer relationships, a core developmental task, but circumvent risk behaviors that predominantly occur in the peer context, right? And talking about the processes that make that difficult are, are, are the two processes that are often discussed in the literature about how teens become susceptible to peer substance use are uh, selection and socialization. Selection refers to, I see a group of kids who are engaging in risk behaviors. I'm interested in that. I select into that peer group and that places me at risk. A second thing is I can be going through the teenage years and my friend group starts to engage in risk behaviors and I take on those risk behaviors of my peer group. That's socialization, right? I'm, I'm socialized to engage in this behavior as a function of who my friends are and what they're doing. And both of these processes are at play, placing teens at risk for engaging in, in substance use. Meta-analysis after meta-analysis demonstrates that both selection and socialization processes are at, are at play. So those are the typical, and, and you know, you mentioned the risky behavior stuff. Like it, it also occurs to me that, that, that adolescence is a time in which uh, I think by design, the brain has not developed fully um, because like there is like you, you do need to be risky, right? Like there mm -hmm. is that element of like, yeah, you, you want to avoid risk because, you know, you don't want to, to end up in a bad situation that's going to ruin your life. Right. Or, or I guess maybe even end your life. And yet part of adolescence is like reaching out to a new peer group, you know, finding people that you didn't know before and connecting with them, taking chances in, in switching identities a, a little bit to figure out who you are. So I imagine that's part of it too, right? Um, kind of balancing that. So Sam, what you're saying is risk-taking is socially advantageous. Right, yeah. It is. It is good to take risks. And, you know, that is exactly how you're saying it, how you actually meet many of these tasks that are so critical for healthy development, right? They intersect with risk behaviors yeah. also, which complicates things, but they're an essential, these risk behaviors are an essential ingredient for positive youth development as well. So, so I think, this is, I think that, that just speaks to the challenge of how- This is the challenge, it is. right? It's really yeah. hard being and a we want, you want We want you to do that also. Yeah, right. like be While risky, your brain isn't fully but ready. not too yeah. risky, or yeah. only in the right That's the tightrope. That is the tightrope, right? <laughs> All and, while navigating this social, yeah, like, while also trying to yeah. pass high school. Yeah, and uh, there's like really interesting work, right, from uh, people like you know Lawrence Sternberg or Steinberg, right, that mm -hmm. so shows you know that if we think about how reward works for teens in this time, that one of the primary mechanisms that tends to drive, you know, their decision-making is peer approval, right? Mm -hmm. And that peer approval at that time is kind of like baked in the cake, designed to be really rewarding to facilitate this specific developmental, you know, set of goals where you're supposed to kind of create your own new in-group and kind of differentiate from your family at that time, right? And so forth, which sets in motion, you know, risk behavior because, you know, I don't know about uh, where you two went to school, but, you know, people who took risks got 
social cachet is a function of it, right? Like doing, mm. you know, mm. people, eat, whether that was totally. in a sports context or in uh, some kind of knucklehead uh, type situation in a parking lot, right? Like both of those things, people were given social cachet as a function of it, which is the juice, right? That people are looking for mm. in this space, which facilitates risk behavior, right? But you want to get risky enough to get the approval, but like not risky enough to pick up something that's going to last with you a lifetime, right? Mm -hmm. And so it's a really challenging situation that, we're, that you know, every teen in the world is facing every day. And, you know, and it's a really, you know, tough needle to thread. Um, but also, you know, many of us experience, you know, some of the most important life developing situations uh, and memories happen during this time. And so it's, you know, it's a really, really interesting. I have friends from high school to this day, right? And I'm sure both of you do mm -hmm. too. Really important people, you know, like, you know, maybe you have a friend named Trip. Uh, you know, I, I grew up with, with, with a close friend named Rick, uh, who I'm friends with to this day, even though our lives are very different. Um, and so um, you, you point out some really important mechanisms here that, you know, are designed, they're baked in the cake, designed to be really prominent and facilitate really important critical developmental milestones, but also kind of place, you know, teens at risk. And so what are some of the like issues and challenges that we face as trying to better understand this period and what kind of, you know, gatekeeps individuals that are going to go on to, you know, have problems per se, and maybe some people who are just going to experiment and then move along. Yeah. So that is, that is a really important question. And, you know, what I want to say is, is, you know, the selection and socialization processes are at play, but it's also thinking about the developmental pathways that unfold that lead youth to be at greater risk for problematic use. So they're, they're kind of, they're kind of two pathways that are, that are common across theoretical perspectives on adolescent substance use. The, the first are externalizing pathways and externalizing pathways are essentially that you are engaging in, you know, you're having difficulties regulating your behavior. Uh, you're hyperactive. You uh, maybe are struggling to listen to rules. And that leads you to be surrounded by peers who are engaging in risk-taking behaviors. And that, that, that risky peer group who are similar for you, not only maybe with respect to their substance use, but also just in terms of the behaviors they're engaging with, place you on a path to, 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 to engaging in substance use and experiencing a host of consequences down the road. The, the other pathway is, a, is an internalizing pathway to substance use, which is uh, you know, work by uh, Andrea Hussang talking about an internalizing model for youth. And what, what she talks about in her model is really, is really interesting. It's actually the idea that youth who experience social rejection, social isolation, maybe they're excluded from developmentally appropriate peer groups. They also select into maybe risky peer groups as well that places them at risk. And I think that the, the challenge that we have is we know that kids who are struggling, whether it's externalizing related behaviors or internalizing behaviors, but it's the failure to form close connections with peers engaging in adaptive behaviors, but that's the challenge. It's these kids also struggle to form close connections with their schools. That's a challenge because that's a critical uh, protective context. And they have worse relationships with their parents as well, which is another key socializing agent that can help youth avoid risk behaviors and have adaptive development. And, you know, one of the challenges that we have is we know this. We know that forming close relationships in contexts that are supportive is adaptive and forming close relationships with risky peer groups or failing to form close relationships at all are risky. 
But I guess the, the, the thing that I spent a lot of time thinking about is knowing that, you know, I know, as you mentioned, I work with teenagers with uh, co-occurring substance use uh, disorders and other mental health conditions, knowing that, knowing I have a teen in front of me who is struggling with their friends, they, in terms of who they're hanging out with, they don't have great relationships with their parents. What are the processes? What are the, what are the skills and the evidence-based principles that we have to help people shift their peer group? And that is, that is a really, really challenging thing. And, you know, Sam, what I'll say with your work, talking about alternative reinforcers, that is so critical. And, and Noah, I know working in, in this area, you've thought a lot about how do I diversify the social experiences of, of youth to help them have positive experiences and circumvent risk behaviors in the peer context. But knowing that we need to diversify that network, how we actually yeah. get a teen to do that <laughs> is really, really hard. Yeah. Absolutely. No, I mean, well, and it strikes me like, I I mean, I think we come back to this because at least I come back to this all the time is like the functionality of our behaviors, but then of substance use in general. And in this population, you could sort of broadly think of it as in these two categories, right? Of like serving some sort of like um, almost enhancement or, uh, you know, externalizing type function of, of it serves some purpose in that domain or of like, connecting you with people in ways that maybe you wouldn't have been able to connect. And so this challenge of like, well, how do you actually like turn it on its head to, to use the selection and socialization processes to actually like encourage um, either abstinence or just other behaviors. Right. And you know what, what I will say, the, the work in this area, that's really fascinating to me. And this, this maps onto my, my clinical experience as well, which I think is important is qualitative work with teenagers. Yeah. And what they what they yeah. talk about is knowledge that hey the, these these kids who I'm these friends who I'm hanging out with they're they're maybe not the best influence right now on my substance use mm. behaviors or my mental health. But at the same time they also provide a lot of important things for me. They know me yeah. best, they support me, they care about me. So you therapist Sam asking me to switch up who I hang out with is You're taking maybe, away a lot. It's taking, a, it's a yeah. big sacrifice. Yeah. So it, you know, yeah. thinking about, and right, because peers are so important, they're a developmental milestone, a developmental task. Asking someone to leave that group and go out in the wilderness and try to find a new one is, is a tough ask. Mm, yeah. 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 Especially so, for so, a person whose brain is still developing and doesn't even know how to do that super great. Because mm-hmm. that's the stage they're at is trying to learn it. Yeah. 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 Well, and it, and it also strikes me just what you said, the qualitative work. I, I don't know. I think maybe sometimes we don't think about even children, but definitely adolescents as like having enough to, to offer us. Right. Like I, I think yeah. I remember as a field, right. As a field. Well, I think as like parents sometimes, oh, right. That's a great as point. teachers, that's a great right. Point. I, sometimes we think that we know, and we, uh, have, we, we have the answers and they're still developing. So they don't know anything. Right. And in reality, I remember the, the, the time that, that sort of my, my childhood shifted was when adults actually started to give me responsibility and yeah. trust me with something. Right. Yeah. So asking, I think, adolescents, like, well, what is it that you do need? Because, in fact, th- they might be able to answer um, or at least uh, sort of communicate something that that they're missing out on that substance use might be sort of filling a hole for. Yeah, that's a great point. 
that that is an excellent point. I'm saying what that you know is, is talking about it. It's it's ensuring that teams have agency and autonomy yeah. decision making. Yeah. Right? And and this and this is I think uh, a challenge for for interventions as well as for prevention research, which is how do we design these things in a way that is respecting the autonomy and agency mm. of teens, both because one they deserve it. They're they're not five years old, but second also it's something that they strive for. Yes. That's another core developmental need. If you talk to teens about what they value, it's independence. It's independence yes. from parents. Yeah. It's independence in decision making. Mm. I well. love that. Yeah, you can but lean into I, that, right? Yeah. yeah I know yeah. you and I have talked about this a great deal, right? But like when we work with parents, they're like, "My kid is using substances. Batten down the hatches. We're going to lock them in the basement. We're going to take away all of their privileges and all of their friends." Yeah, because that's going to protect them from this stuff, right? Right. But if they're not taking the functional, contextual kind of landscape of what substances are doing for them and what they're helping them accomplish as it relates to agency and socialization, right? And these other processes, yeah. right, that are all developmentally anchored in this time period, right? Then, right, what we have, what happens is that it kind of pushes the team to maybe engage in that activity more because it's super reliable, right? Mm -hmm. It's a super reliable and immediate reinforcer, yeah. facilitator of social interactions, right? Social connector, right? All of those types of things. And that, you know, trying to talk to parents about like, what if, and hear me out on this, we didn't do that. And instead we gave them more autonomy and agency sounds terrible. <laughs> parents hate that, right? And it's exactly what the teen needs most of the time. This it was mm. a great talk at CPA that just passed that Ali Urasik had where she was like, I presented qualitatively to the parents this like alternative reinforcer thing. And they were all like, this is garbage. It's not going to work, right? Uh, and, and many of that's because of, I think, the, the historical backdrop of yeah. abstinence and AA and things like that. And they apply that kind of, you know, framework to teens, which just doesn't apply. The problem with most of our interventions with teens is that they were like, what if teens were just small adults and we just gave them the intervention we gave for adults, but if they were smaller? And it's like, that's not quite how it works. We need developmentally tailored approaches that meet the needs of teens as they live their lives and the unique ways in which they live their lives. And I know you and I have talked a lot about this, and I know a bunch of your work is kind of moving into this space. And so I was wondering if maybe you could take us into some of that work and, you know, what, what are the kinds of work that you and your team are doing here to better understand, you know, the unique lives of teens and how that might be, you know, a leverage point to develop better interventions for this group. And yeah, you're, you're, you're preaching to the choir with everything that you said. And I, I think with the people on this is not, this is not my opinion. This has been written numerous times that the lack of developmental consideration in our substance use related interventions for youth is maybe potentially one of the reasons why we see smaller effect sizes and greater yeah. returns to use over time, right? It's just, we we are not knowing our population that we are working with. And that is, that is, that's concerning. Yes. You know, the, the you know, the, the work that, 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 that I have been doing recently that, that has got, got my mind to sort of think a little bit more about how, how we alter interventions down the road is, you know, a, a small pilot study that we did with just these, these were, Predominantly substance naive youth, they were ages 11 to 14. And we were looking at how parents talk to their kids about substance. We were looking at conversations about uh, alcohol, we were looking at conversations about, about cannabis. 
And uh, using this really interesting uh, joystick paradigm where basically it's like almost like a video game. You're live coding the teenager's warmth and their dominance in live mm. time. And you're live coding the caregiver's warmth and dominance in live time. It allows you to get this really rich data of how two people are relating to each other over the course of a conversation. And one of the really interesting findings from that, that, that pilot work is kind of a, across substances, which seems to be really, really critical in terms of how parents talk to their kids about substance use, is that they're warm during the conversation. And also that there is referred to as dominance complementary, but essentially what that means is that there's a, there's, there's turn taking. There's an exchange. Yes, exactly. There's an exchange of ideas happening yeah. over the course of a, a conversation. And no, what you were talking about before in terms of how, you know, how parents should not do it, which is all hands on deck. We are yeah. locking you in the basement and you're right. the light of day again. Right. I, one of the things that I, I, I've become increasingly interested in is right, how we get these messages about parenting, things like regardless of what you're talking about, ensuring warmth, ensuring that you are not only telling your child, you know, what you would like them to do, but also hearing their perspective, right? Respecting their autonomy and decision-making. I think that that is also a really, really critical ingredient. And, and why is, is, is that so important? Well, if we actually know what works best for treating adolescent substance use, and this is prevention work as well as intervention work, caregiver-involved treatments seem to be really, really efficacious. Mm, yeah. What's, what's, what's the issue with that? Well, one of the big issues with that is that it's really hard to find caregiver-involved interventions. <laughs> they, they, as as a treatment provider, I wanna uh, I wanna send out every kid to family therapy. We we provide family therapy at least once a week in in the clinic that that I work in, but it's really hard to find people who are doing evidence-based family therapy because it's time-consuming and it's complicated. Prevention work as well. It is it is hard to disseminate an intervention where you not only need to find a teenager but also rope in a, a caregiver as well to do that work. It's really really meaningful. Yeah. You know these ingredients that parents are doing is essential for a teen's positive development as as well as their uh, avoidance of risk behaviors associated with substance use and consequences associated with substance use. But you know I'm I'm interested in figuring out how how do we actually increase access to these parenting strategies? How, how do we increase knowledge and skills? Because, you know, one of the things that's really interesting that's coming out these days, thinking about the changing landscape with cannabis, is parents don't know what to do. They report that they, they are interested in skills and knowledge that they're just not provided with, right? So if we know that parents are these powerful socializing agents, but they don't feel like they have the skills, there's something we need to do about this. And, mm. and you know, work that I did with with you know, Dr. Miranda at, at, at Brown, we were just looking at where people spend their time over the course of evidence-based treatment for, you know, for, for youth who, who are um, engaging in risky cannabis use. And what we found is that they're not spending a lot of time with parents, right? So it, it leads to this interesting situation where we know parents are really important agents in altering adolescent substance use behaviors. Simple things like warmth, turn-taking, are really efficacious. And this is true just in, in this small pilot study as well as in uh, larger work as well. But access to treatment with parents is really hard to come by. Yeah. So figuring out what to do about that, I think it, it is something that we, we, need, to, we need to wrestle with. We, we, we have the, the ingredients 
for successful interventions. They're just right. really, really hard to prescribe and, 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 and access right now. Well, and it sounds like access to that treatment. And then also there, are, there seems like there are some parent level moderators and it's not that like yeah. these, the parents necessarily mm -hmm. like, cause you're, I mean, I guess these kids are, are, they're in a, they're in a time of life where they're increasingly moving away from their parents, um, mm -hmm. you know, theoretically. Yeah. Um, and it sounds like what the parents role is, it, it, it's kind of like, as a, I guess, as a metaphor, like, uh, being the right size pot for a growing plant, right? Um, and sort of providing that space through those some of those qualities that you mentioned um, for for the uh, the adolescent to start growing in the right direction. Oh, this is such a good point right here. Yeah, it's mm -hmm. like right, like this is a time for develop of developmental change for the parent too, right? Mm -hmm. And and we we, we rarely yeah. appreciate that in the context right that like before that it was like don't touch the fire right like sam i know you have a little one at home so do i right like my most of my time is consumed with like please don't touch the sharp thing or like run into the street and like and that facilitates a very specific interaction with between me and the child right like yeah. between me and my child that produces it. and that if we do that now for 10 years Right. That gets really solidified. And then all of a sudden they're going to be like, actually, can I like not be around you and also not talk to you? And also, right. Like, you know, all the things that movies talk about when parents and teens, right. Like, can you drop me off here and like way down yeah. the street? Right. And like all these types of things, like we need to learn how to size that and support parents in that transitional period to ensure that they can be the right size pot for their growing plant, right? That like learning how to support them. And that's kind of the thing that we talked about, you know, at, at, at Vista and things like that, which is like, you know, how can we teach parents how to use things like praise and, and how do they attend to the positive and not everything is bad all the time. And hmm. how can we facilitate their autonomy and help them understand what they're doing that, that, that the parents really love. Right. And how can we, you know, fold that into an evidence-based treatment that, you know, builds in components for parents and, and gives accessibility to those parents and, and, you know, controlling for the idea that like, you know, a lot of parents don't think of it as their role, right. That like, you know, we've talked about this when we had Bob on the show, the metaphor I like to use for it is like dry cleaning. Like a lot of parents want to <laughs> drop their kids off, right. pick them up clean. Yeah. Right. And like, that's just not how it works. You're going to be with your teen much more than I will. And that, you know, learn, learning how to be the right kind of parent for the teen you have is what we need to do. And, you know, that work that you're doing there, I think is so important, right? Like they're not spending any time with their parents. Part of that is developmentally appropriate and parents are protective, right? And so like, how can we yeah. get the right amount of contact between those two types of people in this situation to produce the right outcomes? And you know what I'll say along these lines. This conversation just makes me think of my my dissertation was was interested in the idea that you both mentioned, which is understanding the right ingredients of parenting and how those systematically change over the course of adolescence. And and you know what my dissertation work found was that parents who are warm from early through middle adolescence, we're talking about ages 11 here through about 15, 16, they maintain high levels of warmth, but they slightly decrease their demandingness. That's the, the rules, the mm. control that they have over their teen. That is associated with teens having an interpersonal style where they are able to form close connections with peers, but also resist peer influence and say no when they want to, right? So that taking a step back while maintaining warmth Yo. 
facilitates an interpersonal style that's actually adaptive for teenagers in an interpersonal context. And we then looked at how those combinations of parenting styles and adolescent interpersonal styles were associated with substance use trajectories across all of adolescence into emerging adulthood. And what we found was that this group of kids who had parents who were warm, but were over time decreasing their demandingness, and right, they were able to form close connections, but also to resist peer influence when need be, they had the lowest probabilities of use and the lowest levels of use from early adolescence all the way through late adolescence, right? Delaying the initiation of use. And what we know is that delaying the initiation of use is so critical to reducing the onset of a substance use disorder in adulthood. It really speaks to, right? It's the parenting. Parenting facilitates adaptive socialization. And it's these things in combination that are shifting across development that serve Mm. this right complicated recipe that facilitates youth adjustment. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm taking notes on that right now. Uh, Do you publish publish that, Sam? Yes, I did. Where where is it published? Developmental psychopathology. Oh, good journal. Good journal. Home run there, Sam. And great work. That's fascinating stuff. I mean, it is like, um, I don't know. It's like, uh, it's like not learning how to hit. It's uh, not learning how to hit harder, like, but learning how to hit, hit better. You know, I guess that's like a baseball analogy. I don't know. I don't watch baseball or anything. So I just, I don't know if that makes any (laughs) sense, but, but the idea is right. We're like, like part of learning and developing as a person is not just doing something better or faster, but also, or or like faster or stronger, but it's also like more nuanced. And, uh, and so as a parent learning when to step back, um, I think it's a really hard thing to do. Uh, it's, it's an, it's an incredibly advanced parenting skill. I I, I would imagine I'm not a parent, but, um, but, uh, that, that could be really, really challenging. And it sounds like almost when you're in this treatment with an adolescent, um, that, you know, you mentioned the family therapy that it's, yeah, you're treating, you, you need to treat just, you need to treat more than the adolescent, but you mentioned it's hard to come by. So I don't know, like, what do you think needs to happen moving forward? Like in order to get, you know, to, to make these treatments more accessible. So that is a challenging question. I know many people have different opinions about how we address this, this obstacle. We as a Yield are facing because this is true for teenagers, but this is also true for any individual who has a substance use disorder or experiencing troubles with their mental health. Right, accessing sure. treatment yeah. is really hard. And I, I, I've been really inspired by the work of Aaron Hogue. And what what he has done is he's done really interesting conceptual and empirical work looking at family therapies. And he's there are tons of different types of family therapies. There's multidimensional family therapy, free strategic family therapy, functional family therapy, multisystemic family therapy, right? The, the acronyms go on and on and on, the names go on and on. And what he's done is he's looked at different manuals and he said, what are the core ingredients across these different treatments? And how can we distill family therapy to these core ingredients? And if we're able just to identify these core elements of family therapy, removing the labels and the acronyms, maybe that's gonna be easier to implement and scale in practice. And I think that's a really interesting perspective to take as a field in clinical psychology, we're moving more to more process-oriented therapies and transdiagnostic therapies that are moving beyond specific labels and acronyms of ACT versus CBT versus DBT, but really what are the core mechanisms that facilitate change? If we can distill those and implement those, and Molly McGill and colleagues have a paper that just came out in ACER talking about this, this idea, that maybe that is one solution to this. It's 
maybe if we don't, if I don't need to go to 15 different trainings as a, as a therapist to learn 15 different types of family therapies, but I can do one brief training to learn the key ingredients, maybe that's going to help increase access. Yeah, that's, so that, that's, that's one path that, that I, I've been interested in and I drank the Kool-Aid for, but there are many, many other paths. Yeah, that's a really, access. really good point, right? Like also because of the training accessibility and all these types of things, right? Like I was just talking to somebody today and they were like, oh, I need to go to this training to become like a level one therapist in like, I don't know what it was, like integrated family systems therapy or something, right? And it was like, you know, all these brands and all that stuff make it hard for like, if you're going to do this level one level training, right? That means that you're probably going to stick to the cookbook, to the recipe you hear really stringently, which may or may not plug right into the place where you're going to be doing therapy, right? The the the, the saying that I've used on the show before, right? It's like you buy a, a couch that fits your house, not a house that fits your couch, right? And that uh, shout out Dennis went for that uh, for that metaphor, but like right, like the idea is that like if we have the core ingredients here and you understand how there are, you can kind of you know toggle in a way that allows it to integrate right into the standard practice in which you're probably already implementing and very good at in the facility in which you work, right? Like how, if you, if there's four ingredients and here's what they are and here's how they work and here's how you can make them work for you in, in the context of your, you know, treatment as usual kind of place, um, then that's probably a lot easier from a dissemination, right? And implementation standpoint, than like, how do we do all of the phases of this integrated family systems therapy to ensure, you know, adherence to the protocol and, and level one status and all these types of things, right? Like, I think your, um, you know, discussion of this particular element in, and, you know, Dr. Aaron Hoag's work here are really setting the stage for how we can move the field forward. And I think that's, you know, hard work, hard work, and just like really important. And, you know, I, I think it's, it's it's going to be possible because looking at the prevention literature right we're jumping back a lot before between treatment and prevention but in the prevention world looking at what works looking at the behavior change ingredients in prevention study you know studies for substance use it's gen these general parenting strategies things like monitoring warmth phrase rules that are effective they don't even need to be substance specific just these like general ingredients seem to be working across the spectrum of preventing a teenager from engaging in substance use all the way through a teenager who has a substance use disorder and we need to engage in effective treatment it's the, the key ingredients are here it's just it's just getting them out and training people and mm. that seems to be really really important yeah yeah absolutely well I mean, Sam you this has been such an enlightening um discussion um you know, it's, I feel like, uh, talking through some of the process, some of your work, um, is, is clearly just so impactful in sort of isolating these processes and these mechanisms in treatment. And, um, I mean, it sounds like you're, you're going to have a hand in also maybe helping increase the availability of this over time. So I'm really excited to see, I mean, obviously, um, the three of us are, are more or less contemporary. So I'll, I'll probably get to see, um, see your career all the way through. Um, and I'm, I'm just really excited to see what, what develops, um, already it's, it's pretty illustrious. So, um, uh, I appreciate you spending time with us and, um, and just walking us through your research. Thank you. It's been, yeah. it's been really fun talking to you both who I, look up to and feel grateful for having as, as colleagues and friends to 
be able to chat with you about about research and the work that I've been doing. It definitely makes it fun. Yeah. And and mm -hmm. that's uh speaking of social context, um, it's it's really nice to have people you like in in, yeah. in your field and that you can work with and write with. So yeah. Um so we were wondering if if we could move on to the the take homes. Um all right. Yeah. All right. So I'll get us started. Um, what do you think the take home message is uh for your work with with people in recovery or who are interested in changing their substance use, and I guess in this case, we can even say uh, maybe adolescents in recovery or parents who yeah, are interested in their families. adolescence. Right. So you know, what, I, what I'll say is, is, is that the, the take-home message is there, there's a lot of work to be done in the adolescent substitution space. But the thing, the thing that, that I've read recently that's most encouraging to me is we think about the, the changes occurring in brain development as a bad thing, right? It's a really risky period. That's also a great thing because it means there's a lot of plasticity going on. That means there's a lot of opportunities for new learning. So getting teens access to evidence-based treatment, having parents who are, you know, and parents still matter during this developmental period who are parenting their kids can have a really big impact and shift adolescent brain development to place them on a good trajectory. So thinking about adolescence as this critical period of risk-taking, but also as opportunity, mm. I think for, for me, it, it inspires me to continue to do the work that I do, knowing yeah. that we have a, a, a chance to really shift the trajectory of someone's life. So, you know, for, for people who are struggling with their substance use or a caregiver who's worried about their teen, like this is also a period of opportunity that you can capitalize on. Yeah. Makes me yeah. think of like jujitsu, is it? That using momentum like Judo. against people? Judo. Thank yeah, you. And no. use the person's own momentum against them. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's the beautiful thing, right? Like we're for them in this case, we'll it, say. Precisely. Yeah. Precisely. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I think that's a really important message here is that like, this is an opportunity where little small changes can have huge long-term effects on the teen's mm -hmm. life, on the parent's life, right? And all that time. It's also incredibly challenging. And so, you know, getting them access to evidence-based care here is, is absolutely essential. Um, what would you say to practitioners who might be listening? Oftentimes what we see in practice is that they're people who treat substance use disorders, but they exclude teenagers. Or you have mental health programs. And if a teenager uses substances, and most teenagers have co-occurring pathology, these things right. happen together in nature, it will kick out the teenager who uses a, who mm. uses a substance. Yeah. Yeah. Right? And you know, one of the things that I've, I've tried to emphasize during this conversation is there are four ingredients that are just central for effective parenting, for reducing psychopathology that are not necessarily substance use specific. They work for individuals who use substances, but they're not substance use specific. So, you know, what I would challenge practitioners to do are to understand the unique developmental features of adolescent substance use, of course, but also know these are not drastically different yeah. kids that are impossible to treat and they, they, they deserve treatment. And knowing how few get access to treatment, if you're willing to go a little bit out of your comfort zone, learn a little bit, it can make drastically different it can make a drastic impact on a kid's life. So I, I think I wouldn't push people to, to let, let, let's include these kids. Let's think about how we can meet their needs because they, they deserve it. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for that point. What would you say to policymakers? So I would say we have to invest in prevention. <laughs> Treating yeah. right across every, <laughs> every episode you have, right? The conversation is, this is so complicated, right? 
If we just got ahead of it. <laughs> if we just got ahead of it, it's the most cost-effective strategy. Yeah. yeah. We can we can focus on strengths just as much as, you know, maybe risk factors as well. We can set people up for positive development that improves, improves the quality of their life, not only focusing on removing access to substances or reducing risks associated with substances. So increasing our focus and emphasis on prevention, I think, is, is the best thing we can do as a field to mitigate the, the harms that come from engaging in risky substances. Yeah. Well, great point. I think that's such a, such a great <laughs> it's point. It's a great point. Yeah, we talk about it a lot. We like dance around it a lot actually on the show, right? But like just straight up like fund prevention work, right? Like mm -hmm. I understand it goes against some of the like bootstraps kind of American culture, right? And mm -hmm. is the best, most cost-effective yeah. way to have, you know, just a population of people who, who are doing um, their best work. Yeah. Right? Um, mm -hmm. What would you say? What about um, underserved populations? What do you think the take home message is for them? So, you know, I, the first thing, you know, we haven't had too much of a, of a chance to talk about, you know, underserved populations, but, you know, in looking in prevention work, who we need to talk to, we need to talk to black families. Yes. Black mm -hmm. mothers, black fathers. Why? They tend to have the lowest risk of engaging in substance use. They are doing something right and amplifies, amplifying those voices and those experiences and those parenting practices is actually really important for this, to mm -hmm. this picture because they consistently have the lowest rates of, of substance use. And the, the other thing that I just want to acknowledge that, you know, is brought up on multiple podcasts that, I, that I've heard listening to y'all is the, the racism that we see in adult populations towards substance use with respect to laws, policies, how they're implemented in practice that exists amongst teenagers. You know, I, I have worked with teenagers mm. to give some, you know, real world experiences. I've worked with some teenagers who uh, come from minor minoritized backgrounds who have uh, blunt on them who are sent to jail and people who coming from affluent backgrounds who are white, who are distributing yeah. pretty serious substances who the police are like, Oh, you know what? Let's let's work with you. Let's learn about what you're going through, and let's figure out how we can work as a team. Right. So the the racist and unjust behaviors that we see across the gamut for substance use behaviors exists amongst teens, and that's something that as a field that we have to yeah. wrestle with as well, because it, it these experiences right have have a really serious impact on on youth development, and that's that's another thing that we we really need to be mindful of because again, the experiences of racism at a very early age. And drastically alter one's trajectory in life. So it, yeah. it, it is a is a big thing for us to be mindful of because these are these are just teenagers. Yeah. Yeah. And let's be equitable in the direction of working with people instead of sending them to jail. Agreed. Yes. That's what I'll add. Agreed. Yeah. Very yeah. few things alter the trajectory of your life more swiftly than right. incarceration. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, it's the school to prison pipeline right yes, and exactly. um that, that you just yeah and and it's um it's a it's a terrible thing and that's something that we need to continue i think to um well to, to voice uh and acknowledge um uh, but then um advocate for um changes mm -hmm. in so um well thank you so much sam um one final question um like literally already you're just out of postdoc um you know by only a little bit you've already made it a pretty big impact um uh, and and what kind of advice do you have for trainees out there? So uh, I'm going to hopefully remain on brand here Perfect. and talking about interpersonal processes and saying that 
there, there are a lot of challenges in our careers in addiction science. It's a long educational process. There's a lot of skills you have to learn. Doing it with people who are kind and who are smart makes it an immensely rewarding and enjoyable experience. And I would say putting your effort into those selection processes, finding out those people, and then once you get there, staying there, being socialized by them, really makes this a enjoyable, meaningful, and fulfilling career. So my, my advice is if you don't have those people right now, seek them out. And if you have them, hold on to them tight because it, it just it just makes this a, a, a way more enjoyable process. Couldn't agree more. Yeah. Beautiful. Yeah. Thanks, Sam. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thanks so much Thank for taking you. some time out uh, to join us and uh, taking the time away from your baby to, to <laughs> wrap with us about, about interpersonal processes and parenting. Snapchat. It was great talking to you both. Yeah. On our next episode, we're going to be talking with Dr. Rachel Winograd about the challenges and solutions to dissemination and implementation in the field of substance use and substance use disorders. You will not want to miss this.